We're wired for worship. You know, God created you for worship. It's part of your DNA. It's what God's design was for for our life. Jesus was asked one time, and we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he was asked about worship. And he said this as he answered her in John 4, 23. He said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. You know, we are created for worship, and it's not just something we, we do in our lives. It's based on your, the spirit. It's based on the, the heart condition, you know. It's based on God's truth and from God's word. And when we get our heart right, when it's in line with God's word, then we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. And God takes a lot of joy. He delights in that kind of worship. That's the kind of worship that that God seeks. In other words, God's saying to, to worship him with a spirit, a spirit that's genuine, that's authentic, that's real, that rings true down to the core of who we are, the heart. And that we, as we worship, it may not be pretty. In other words, what we see, what we, what we hear, the externals might be kind of lacking. And that's good for a guy like me. You know, that it might be poorly choreographed, uh, so to speak. But it doesn't matter what the externals look like because it's about the internal. God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. As Christians, the Holy Spirit takes up residency in our life. And the Holy Spirit's there to kind of guide us and direct us. Uh, it's there to convict us uh, along the way. Uh, the Holy Spirit is an advocate uh, for us. But the Holy Spirit also interprets our worship. In other words, the Holy Spirit knows what's going on in your heart. You know, the, the Holy Spirit understands that. And so worship, again, it starts with the heart. And it rings true when we live our lives according to that worship, when it aligns with with God's word. And I'm going to talk about that in a lot of detail uh, next week. But it, it aligns itself with God's word. So when we worship in spirit and truth, God seeks us out. You know, 2 Chronicles, the 16th chapter, says, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those, what? Whose hearts are set on him. It's like God spinning the globe called earth and suddenly notices the River Bend area and zeroes in on faith fellowship. You know why? Because he sees genuine hearts that are worshiping. And when God sees that, he zeroes in on it. You know, they have been worshiping since the beginning of time. You know, when God flung the stars into space, put the planets in, in their place, there was worship at that moment. You know, creation 
took place, I would argue, against a backdrop of worship. You know, there's a conversation recorded uh, between God and Job uh, a couple weeks ago. We talked about Job a, a little bit. And uh, Job had lost his family. He lost all of his possessions. He's battling some health issues. He keeps the faith. But there's a point where apparently Job was venting a little bit, and r- rightfully so, with all that he'd been through. And he's kind of wondering if maybe God got his wires crossed a little bit. And God kind of pushes back on Job. Job 38 says, God's speaking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me, if you understand, who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what was its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? God's saying, when he created the universe, the angels in heaven were singing. It's almost like, can you picture God creating things? And it's kind of choreographed to the music coming from heaven. And and here's what I think. I think that when God creates, that God creates against a backdrop of worship. You know, I often think that I need God desperately to do some creating in me. You know, I need God to create some things that are missing in my life. You know, some things that are missing in my marriage, things like love or patience or or forgiveness, things that just aren't quite up to snuff. You know, I need God to replace and create some things in my life that are missing in my leadership. You know, there are times I don't have the wisdom or the insight that I need. They're just things I don't have. And so I need God to create those things that are missing. And it's like God is saying to me, if you need me to create more in you, I'll do that. But I create the best when it's put up when we lift up a backdrop of worship. In fact, I believe this. I believe if we worshiped more, that God would create more in our lives. You know, worship, it's been since the beginning of creation. And you can track it throughout Scripture. I mean, since the beginning, God's people, God's people have worshiped. It's part of the rhythm of life if you follow the Israelites throughout the, the entire Old Testament. They're always worshiping. In fact, they're always building altars and uh, they're worshiping and praising God. If, uh, remember when we went through our Motown series, uh, Moses, Moses is leading the children of Israel through the, the desert to the promised land. And all along the way, they build altars. And you literally, they're, they're like uh, mile markers showing where the Israelites traveled. You know, they built altars, and they always built them the, the same way. They would build them with 12 stones. Now, I'm talking big stones. And there were 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes uh, of Israel. And so they would place those stones, and it was an identity for each family. 
And so you had like the, the Reuben family and the Simeon family and the Levi's and the Judah. And they would place a stone as part of their worship because what it did was it reminded them. If you were from one of those families, it reminded you who you are. That you belong to God. And it's the same. It's true today when we worship. That it's a reminder of who we are. There's something I've noticed uh, reading through the Old Testament. That when the Israelites kind of strayed from God. Started chasing other things. They, they stopped worshiping. That when that happened. The altar of God would go into disrepair. When, and when we worship, friends, it identifies us as God's people. It reminds us who we are, to whom we belong in, in our lives. You know, history records in 1 Kings 18 that most of the Israelites were worshiping other gods. And there's a prophet by the name of Elijah. And Elijah is on the scene. And Elijah, he's an interesting guy because he's one of those straight-to-the-point type. He doesn't beat around the bush. We would call it blunt. Well, that was Elijah. And uh, he started speaking out against the other gods, and it didn't set well. I mean, it didn't set well with the priests of Baal or with the priestess of Asherah. They, they were uh, popular. They were fertility, gods and goddesses. And you need to remember, this is agricultural society. And Israel is worshiping other gods, Baal and Asherah. They're involved in uh, temple prostitution and all kinds of off-the-chart crazy stuff. And so Elijah is watching what's going on, and he's blunt. He looks, he sees it, he goes, this is wrong. This is wrong. I cannot tell that you're the people of God anymore. And I love the people because they kind of said, well, everybody's doing it. Welcome to the ninth century, my friend. Besides, you don't see anything wrong with what we're doing. And the priests of Baal get irritated with him. And finally, Elijah... He can't stand it anymore, and he kind of uh, does a Bobby Flay throwdown with him. He says, you know what? We're going to have a backyard barbecue. We're going to barbecue some ox. And I think if you're up to it, now steaks are going to be high. Elijah says, you bring all the prophets of Baal and Asherah to the top of Mount Carmel. You bring an ox. You build an altar, a pit. You put wood in there, put the ox on top, and I'll do the same. You pray to your God, and I'll pray to mine. And if God answers, if your God answers, you can kill me. But if my God answers, I'll kill all of you. Do you accept the challenge? Can you imagine the tense moment there? High stakes, very, very high stakes here. All the people of Israel, they, they turn out on the mountain because they want to see what's going to happen. 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, 
Does that tell you how popular that was? 850 of them. They build an altar. They put wood on it. They put the ox on it. And they pray to their God all day long. Scripture says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Can you picture what's going on here? You've got God's people kind of hiding out a little bit. They're hiding out and kind of blending into culture. Elijah, he, he grabs stones and he starts putting them in place. And as he gets that first stone, I imagine he looked the crowd over. And then he said, Reuben, he was the oldest. And if you were from the tribe of Reuben, when he put that stone in place, your heart would go. Then he'd take the next stone, Simeon, and one after another, Levi, Judah, Dan. And he worked his way all the way through to the last one, Benjamin. And each time he put the stone in place, he would call out the name of that tribe, If you were part of that tribe, you're sitting there going, that's me. That's me. People who had lost their identity were restored in worship. So Elijah, he puts the the wood out. He puts the ox on the altar. And then he pours water all over it. I think he's trying to make a point at this point. He prays to God. And boom, fire strikes. And they have a major barbecue up there. Friends, when we gather to worship like we did today, it is to restore our identity, to remind us who we are. I mean, we live in a society that is less and less Christian. You know, Merry Christmas has been traded in for happy winter break, you know, or something politically correct, supposedly. You know, it's identity theft, I mean, that's what's going on. The evil one wants to rob and steal your identity. You know, that's why it's so important to worship. I mean, when we gather to worship, it reminds us of who we are, who we belong to. It reminds us of our identity. You know, Elijah, he says, come near to me. He gathers them up. He repairs the altar that had been torn down, was in disrepair. And he reclaims their identity in that. Friends, when we gather and and worship, I I think it's important that we worship and we stand in in confidence that that God will repair things in our lives. I mean, God's good at it. Those, Those things that maybe have been diluted, that have been destroyed, that, that somehow has been compromised in our, in our lives, that in worship, as we remember who we are and we remember who we belong to, then we are restored. You know, we're called to worship in, in spirit and truth. I mean, how do, we, how do we do that? Now, I do not have time 
to go through all the ways that we can worship, but I want to look at a few, and I'm going to look at a few next week as well. But one of the things we do is singing. We did that earlier. You know, Hebrews uh, writer says, through him then, let us continually offer up what? Sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that gives thanks to his name. In other words, as we remember the price that Jesus Christ paid on the cross, as we remember that he made that ultimate sacrifice, we continue with a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise, our singing, fruit of our lips. You know, Revelations 14.3, it talks about that God's people sang a new song. You know, one of the things we do in worship is we sing. We sing. And I know as I say that, some of you are going, well, that leaves me out. I can't sing. Join the club. That's why Psalms 95 is in Scripture. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Here's the deal. It doesn't matter that you can't sing. It doesn't matter if someone was listening to you this morning and they're looking at you and they're thinking, what are they doing? <laughs> someone else turned to them and said, think they're making a joyful noise? <laughs> you know. It doesn't matter. You know why? Because God doesn't hear what's going on on the outside. He hears what's in the heart. In other words, when, when your heart's right, it's a beautiful thing. God is listening to your heart. It may get messed up as it moves to your vocal cords and comes out. That's where it becomes noise. But God looks to the heart. You know, the flip side of that is you may have pitch-perfect voice. But if it's not all heart, that's static. Yeah, I remember years ago, I hadn't been in ministry very long, and uh, I was serving a little church in uh, Modesto. And um, a girl asked to sing in, in the service. I'm not sure she ever hit one note right. I mean, she was off tempo, and as she sang, I mean, tears are rolling down her cheeks. And initially, I'm thinking, she's crying because she knows she's really bad. You know, and then I started kind of complaining to God. You ever done that? You know, quietly thinking, oh my, she's bad. I bet God's getting the earplugs out right now. And that girl kept singing, and she sang her heart out. And, and friends, it was like God just pressed on me. Damon. I silenced all heaven. She's, she's got my full attention. Damon, be quiet. Silence. You give her your full attention too. Friends, God looks at the heart. And when we sing... If it's got heart, it's a joyful noise, and that turns into a joyful symphony as we sing together. Sing with heart, sing with heart. Something else we do in worship, sometimes people raise their hands. They lift their, their hands to God. 
You know, 1 Timothy says, in every place of worship, I want men and women to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. My bet is that sometime during this week, things got out of kilter. You know, you were part of a controversy or had a little bit of anger. And that that residue just kind of lingers with us, doesn't it? And so when we first get to church, our, our heart, our heart's a bit dirty. And God says, you know what? I want you to come and lift your hands. Not just say, God, we love you. But to also say, God, start scrubbing. You know, my, my grandkids, uh, they come down and stay the weekend uh, once in a while. And they love bath time. You know, toys, games, and bubbles. That's what bath's about. But at some point, the real reason we're in the bathtub, and we'll say, lift your arms. Because we want to scrub under your arms. And when you lift your arms to God, it's kind of saying, okay, God, start scrubbing. I mean, I know there are some things that aren't right in my life. Just cleanse me, clean me. Psalmist says, search me, O God. And know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in a way everlasting. You know, lifting our hands, it's it's a sign of cleansing. It's a sign of renewal. It's a sign of of being restored in, in our lives. And it's also a sign of surrender to God. You know, if you were heading to your car, and someone puts a gun to your back, what's the first thing that goes up? besides the hair on your neck, your hands. I surrender. You know, this is kind of letting them know they can take whatever they want to take. Isn't it? It's, it's resigning ourselves. When you put your hands up in worship, it's a sign of surrender to God. And it's kind of strange because when we surrender to God, we actually find ourselves on a road to success at that point. In fact, until we surrender, as long as we think we can do it on our own, as long as we think it's my savvy, my intellect, my ability, my talent, my strength, or or whatever, when we surrender and finally acknowledge that we don't have what it takes, suddenly things begin to shift. Because I'm not relying on my strength. I'm not relying on my power. I'm not relying on my wisdom. You're saying, I need you, God. I need you, God. And friends, when we are worshiping, when we surrender to God, God starts working in your life at that point. Losses can become wins. What is impossible actually becomes possible because God has the ability that is way beyond our ability To give us a victory. You know, when we're surrendering uh, to our own desires, we're surrendering, trying to control everything in our life. When we're surrendering to God and obeying him and following him and letting him rule and reign in our lives and in our heart, it shifts. Things change. You know, Isaiah says it this way. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, goes on and says, rise with wings of eagles. 
unbelievable, off-the-chart stuff. You know, the Apostle Paul said it this way, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. Then God's strong, able to, to work through me. You know, when you surrender, you find victory. The reason why a lot of times we are losing in some area of our life, the reason why God is not working strong in our lives is because we refuse to be weak. We refuse to surrender. Friends, there are times you need to worship. You need to lift your hands and surrender to God. And not only is it a sign of surrender, it's also a sign of victory, isn't it? How many of you have watched uh, Usain Bolt run this week? Let me see hands. Come on, surely. All right, few. Well, he's the Jamaican sprinter, fastest man to ever walk the planet. I mean, this, this guy is unbelievable. I saw him during the Olympics, and he coasted into victory in the, in the 100 meter. I mean, he's shattering records. He broke two world records this week, the 100 meter and the 200 meter. Just boom, like it was nothing. And every time he crossed the finish line, at some point, hands went up. Victory. It was a victory. And then he would do one of these. I wouldn't suggest that in worship, but, uh, you know, it's a sign of victory. Uplifted hands cleanse me. God, surrender. I'm surrendering to you in victory. Have a victory because of what God can do in our lives. There's another way we worship, clapping. Clapping. I mean, faith fellowship likes to clap. I've decided that we've we've clapped after prayers. We've clapped after messages. uh, Announcements even, we've clapped a few times. We clap for songs. And we clap a lot of times during songs. And I know it's not to keep rhythm because some of you have no rhythm at all. Why do we clap? Why do we clap? You know, Old Testament times, uh, if two people were trying to make a deal or a transaction, like, for instance, uh, I'll buy this goat for X amount of money. After a little bit of bartering, when they finally came to an agreement and things were, were finalized, they would clap. Both parties would clap. And it was to show that they agreed with one another. And so people around them, when they heard them clapping, they're going, oh, they just made a covenant with one another. They just made some kind of an agreement or an arrangement with one another. And the next thing you knew, people were doing it in worship. They were doing it in worship. Then later in the church, you know, someone would hear something, a a prayer or a message or a song, whatever, and they would clap because it touched their heart, it was a sign that they agreed with whatever was being sung or said. You know, they're saying, I'm in on this. I agree with that. I'm claiming that too. You look at our society, we clap all the time. You know, go to a game. Some guy swings a, a wooden stick and knocks a leather ball over a fence, and people get out of their seats and go crazy. And they clap and they shout and they yell. And it's interesting, when those same people 
going crazy at a ball game, clapping at everything. Then they go to church, and I've been in some churches, grew up in one of those churches, and someone claps, and it's like, somebody please stop them. They're, they're a lunatic. They're crazy. It's biblical. It's biblical. The psalmist says, oh, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. It's what we do at baseball games, basketball games, football games. We should be doing it here. In fact, it's more biblical here than at a game. You know, when we clap in in the service, not only are we saying we agree, we're also attributing credit to someone else, that it's not about me. It's about giving credit to God. You know, when you're at a football game, somebody makes a touchdown. What do you do? You clap, you yell, yay, way to go. It's gratitude in a way. When, when we're clapping, we're celebrating a, a victory. We're, we're expressing gratitude to God. You know, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, our offering to God is this. We are the sweet smell of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are being lost. When we worship, when we're clapping, when we're singing, when we're lifting our hands, it is that praise that we lift up is a sweet fragrance, a sweet smell. And it says to those being saved and among those who are being lost. That seems like a strange passage. Anybody else think that's... It just seems odd. But a little history really makes this come to life. The fact is, during biblical times, uh, some king would decide that they wanted to expand their territory. And so they would go attack another king. And when they entered that other king's territory, word would get back to the castle, and the king, who's being invaded would ride out. And the invading king and the defending king would do battle. And if the invading king won, then their territory, their kingdom was expanded. But if the defending king won, very, very, very different story. Defending king uh, would retain their territory, but then they would return to the city that they just defended. People would line the streets, and they would throw flowers out into the street. And as the flowers began to pile up on these cobblestone streets, and it was usually several inches of flowers, as the chariots, as the hooves of the horses, as the boots of the soldiers crushed those flowers, it released this incredible sweet smell, sweet fragrance. It's where we got the practice at weddings of the girl dropping flowers as part of of a wedding. It's where that practice came from originally. So when the king and his soldiers came through the gates, people would start throwing these flowers. And then they would start applauding and clapping. It was a sign of victory. But then the prisoners of war would come through the gate. They're shackled. 
And they would be walking in the same fragrance. And this wasn't a fragrance of being saved for them. This was a fragrance of being lost. In fact, it meant death for them. Same fragrance, different meanings. You know, when the prisoners were being escorted to their death, people would change their applause. They're not clapping for them. Now they're clapping at them, booing, hissing. You see that at football games, don't you? I mean, not at the Jones Dome. They'd never do that. But uh, other, other places, you boo and hiss, and, and people cheer. And one means one thing, one means another thing. And so when the, the citizenry was clapping, they were attributing the victory to the king. They were also letting their enemy know that they were defeated. Friends, when we clap, it's the same in our worship. I mean, if you back up a verse, the the New American Standard says it this way, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Throughout the Bible, there is a lot of scriptures that talk about when the enemy was defeated, that they clapped. You know, Nahum 3 uh, says, there's no relief in your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. And all who hear about you will clap their hands over you for whom has not your evil passed continually. They were clapping because he was defeated. And sometimes, friends, sometimes we clap to acknowledge that God is victorious, to acknowledge that victory. But sometimes... We clap because it's a way of saying to the evil one in our lives, you lose, you're defeated, you are going to come up short. You know, sometimes you just got to take a stand against the devil, against the evil in your life. You know, what is it that you're trying to do in my life and you just kind of turn on the evil one? You know, you're not going to do that in my marriage. You're not going to do that in my financial life. You're not going to do that in my family, in my life. It is not going to happen. God is bigger than you. You lose. You're defeated. You are busted. James says it this way. So give yourself completely to God. Stand against the devil, and the devil will run from you. Here's what I know. Some of you, some of you need in your life, desperately need in some area to just take a stand against the evil one. You know, you just need to take a stand and say you are not going to win on on your own. I mean, you need God. You can't do it. It's a war. I mean, it's a battle. You know, Paul says it this way, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have a divine power to demolish strongholds. Just raise your hand if 
there is some area in your life right now, maybe big, it may be little, but you need a victory. Let me see your hands. All right? Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I will not embarrass you, but stand up where you're at right now if you raised your hand. And clap. You know, we, we clap because we need a victory. We need a victory in our marriage. We need a victory in finances. And maybe it has to do with our kids. Maybe it has to do with an addiction that we're battling. Some of you need vocational victory. Some of you need health victory. I don't know what it is. But it's saying, Satan, you lose. God's in charge. God is victorious. And I just ask you to pray with me. God, we praise you. God, I praise you for these people. And God, we clap our hands because we know you are in charge. And God, I pray that you give us strength, whatever it is that we're going through, whether it be financial or marriage, God, if whatever it is, we just clap because we know you are the creator and recreator of all things. And God's people, huh? Victory and defeat. You know, there are so many ways to worship. And we've, we've just looked at a few. But here's what I know. Whatever, however we worship, we are to worship with spirit, and in truth. In other words, line up with God's word. And when we worship, it reminds us who we are. It reminds us who we belong to. And worship is about all heart. You know, God, God, when God sees that, God zeroes in. God delights in worship like that. And friends, it's a difference maker. In fact, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in eternity. Worship. Worship. We're going to worship now. And I just invite you to worship however you see fit.